in a way not to look at meditation just as an in a way exotic activity. I just do meditation possibly to resolve this or that and then once it's done what it's supposed to do then I can move on and I don't know take a golf or basketball or something more interesting. But I think in a way meditation is for all our life. And so it's kind of something because I think often what happens when we sit in meditation is that I feel we meditate but at the same time I feel that we are waiting and we are waiting for something very special to happen. Maybe we start to lift from the cushion or we become lit like a Christmas tree or whatever it is you have in your images. <coughs> and I'm not saying that as we sit in meditation, of course, we might experience meditative state when we feel very quiet and clear, or we might have mystical experiences where suddenly we see so clearly that everybody has Buddha nature, everybody has a creative potential. But to me, the most interesting effect of the meditation is actually not so obvious. And it's what I would call the de-grasping effect. And that's why you sit in meditation and often you think, well, not much is happening. But because often we think there should be something added, when actually what the meditation does is dissolve something. So it's a little more difficult for us to see that something is not there. And recently I had this uh, lady, and she'd been practicing for more than 10 years, and, and she came to me and said, you know, I've been practicing for 10 years, and my meditation really, it's not really that good, or really not improving, and she really sounded a little kind of down. And I said, but what about your life? And she said, oh, my life is much better. <laughs> so what was interesting is that she could see the change in the life. And in a way, I think because of that, she continued with this meditation where not much seems to happen. But because the happening in this, like I would nearly say, underneath, releasing the grasping effect, and also, once I talked to her a little, she could see that her meditation did, had improved. She was not so caught and lost as she used to be. But at the same time, her meditation was not like she thought it should be. And that's something else. That often you sit in meditation, and I know you're about 45 of you here, and possibly sometimes there is 90 people in here. There is the actual meditator, and next to that meditator there is the supposed fantastic how it should be meditator. And to notice how you do this, you sit and you compare to how it should be. But there is no how it should be. It is as it is. Sometimes it is brighter, sometimes less so. But the fact that you sit, the fact that you sit the 30 minutes, even if you have lots of thought, even if you feel restless, something happens. Something is a little different. So to me, that is, in a way, meditation for life. The fact that sitting in meditation, walking in meditation, cultivating meditation, meditative awareness throughout the day as an effect that we can feel later in our life. And at that level, I would say that actually meditation is food for the organism, is food for our whole being, for our spirit. And that, at that level, is not special. To meditate is a bit like eating. I mean, sometimes you have fancy dinner, but no matter what, you have to eat. And you can often have very ordinary dinner, but they still fills you up. They satiate your hunger. So personally, I would equate meditation with brushing one's teeth. So every day, I presume, you brush your teeth. 
once or twice a day. And when you brush your teeth, you don't stand there in the middle of the mirror and say, wow, that was such an amazing brushing of teeth. I would tell everybody about it. You just do it because it feels beneficial, it feels good to do it. And you don't think any, you don't expect anything special from it, apart from having cleaner and fresher teeth. And so, in a way, to look a little at when we sit in meditation, can we, in a way, be aware of that, sometimes that expectation? And I would say that at that level, meditation <coughs> is multifaceted and has many different aspects of learning, of opening, of letting go. So it is, that's why I think it's meditation for life. It's a lifelong journey. And at that level, we have to be careful of thinking that meditation is going to sort us out, especially in a weekend. I don't know if you've heard this awakening intensive. You know, in a weekend, you become awakened. I mean, possibly it happens, but I'm not so sure about that. I think it's a lifelong journey. There is so many hidden corners without our being, within our being, that sometimes something can go and dissipate, and sometimes something takes a long time to work with. And I remember some time ago, I had a friend I saw regularly, and she was very keen in meditation. She really was, yeah, very happy to meditate. And then one year, she comes to me, and said, Pah, meditation, Pah. I do it, but really, what's the point, you know? Well, my friend do basketball, I do meditation, but this is it. Huh? And I thought, what's the matter? Why, why has it changed your mind? So after kind of more than 10 years, I said, what happened? She said, Pah, my teacher, he's not compassionate. So he's not really awakened. So it doesn't work, does it? So I thought, wait a minute, what happened? And so she said, uh, she went to a great teacher. She really, you know, respected him so many years and really looked up to him. And she went to his uh, center. And after a while, she had some problem. And she was in great difficulty, and it was very painful. And so she goes to the teacher, and she said, I am suffering. I have this great difficulty. And the teacher says, let it go. And it did not work whatsoever. I mean, this is, yes, a Buddhist way of saying something. But obviously, it was not creative. And she felt it was very uncompassionate, because it did not really listen to what she had to say. So I was trying to point out that, you know, maybe the teacher still had to work and practice and get what I would call people skills. You know, maybe he had great meditative experience, but obviously, you know, he needed to work on what I would call practical compassion, being with the people and trying to be with them where they are and to creatively respond. And it is difficult to do that. You, know, you can't always, you know, say the right thing. And so, in a way, to see this lifelong journey with meditation, and if I think of my teacher, Master Kuzan, a Zen master in Korea who is dead now, and he is reputed to have had three awakenings. And you might say, but one should be enough, you know? Why does he need three? But this is an interesting idea that they have in that tradition that you have a sudden awakening, a sudden experience of openness in the practice, which is followed by gradual practice. And then again, another sudden awakening, and then again, followed by gradual practice. So that the experience in the meditation is not enough. You must then organically bring it into the daily life, to really the way you relate, the way you are with yourself, the way you are in your work, etc. And what was very beautiful with him when I was traveling was to see that he was all the way through, he was practicing. He was not, it was not just for sure. And I remember one time, tri traveling with him in Europe, and it was midnight in Hamburg station, and we had a long journey behind us and a long journey ahead of us, and he was a little older than myself, and I had 
from the Korean point of view to take care of him as his attendant and everything. And I was frantically looking for him for a place to sit because the station was full and, you know, I wanted him to sit, to be comfortable, etc. And I was looking like a headless chicken looking for, you know, for, and he suddenly said to me, well, why are you rushing about? I said, well, you must sit. You must be able to sit. You know, I must find a seat for you. He said, but I can just stand. I can just stand, just meditate, and just wait. It's okay. So I said, all right. So we just stood for 30 minutes, and then we were doing standing meditation at midnight in Hamburg station. And for me, this was a great teaching. That in a way, of course I had expectation, but also I had to let them go. And I just, you know, be present, accepting, creatively engaging with the situation at hand, which is what he was doing, just standing there with no trouble, not expecting because he's a great Zen master, he has to have a special sitting or whatever. Also in Meditation for Life, I see this aspect which is to recognize and to appreciate life in this moment. And in a way to be more in it. Because I think often, in a way, we take life for granted. And through that, we become a little bored with it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, this is boring. Oh, yep. And we kind of let, in a way, we get a little disheartened. And we kind of, you know, watching TV, just kind of sometimes we, we feel a little aimless. What, what is it worth for? What is it about? And, and I think, you know, to me, one of the meditation aspects is that it really helps us to be more present to the fact that we are alive and that each moment of life is really precious. And each moment of life we can practice. We can cultivate stability, openness. We can cultivate wisdom and compassion. Instead of thinking, another boring moment. And we could turn it around and say, another practicing moment, another opportunity in which my potential can blossom. And I was very, you know, touched by my teacher when I was in Korea before he, he died. We were walking, he was a little unwell, and we still went for a walk together. And he stopped and we sat down on a tree trunk and he turned to me and he said, you never know how you're going to be at the time of death. And for this reason, you must practice very diligently up to that point. And he said, I too, I don't know how I'm going to be. So I too, I have to practice until the last breath I am going to have. And to me this was very inspiring to see he did not take it for granted that he was his great then master, totally equanimous no matter what happened, but that he too had to practice. So that we would practice everywhere, in the train, in the plane, anytime. <coughs> he would just fold his leg and meditate. Because for him he had not arrived. Even if he had three awakening, it still practice was part of his life. Because he, so once I said to him, but because he was sitting in meditation in the train, like that, and I said, but wouldn't it be better if you lie down? He said, uh uh, it does not taste the same. It tastes so much better when I'm sitting in meditation. So, you know, it added something. He felt it added a taste to his life. And I think, in a way, for us to look at how sometimes we feel frustrated. And in a way, we sometimes feel we have this desire to be someone else, to be somewhere else. And in a way, I think meditation can really help us with acceptance. To accept that there is nowhere else to go, there is no one else to be but just to be with ourselves. To, in a way, to me, meditation is a learning to know ourselves, a learning to accept ourselves, a learning to be with ourselves, to, in a way, learning to become friend with ourselves. And I had this experience some year ago when I was at home, and at home, 
uh, when my mother, grandmother was still alive, I used to play domino with her in the afternoon because that was the only thing she was, could still was able to do. So we would just play domino and it would kind of, you know, engage her. And, and this was autumn. And in autumn, the leaves fell on the patio. And my grandmother hated autumn leaves on the patio. This was a bad thing. So we were playing, and then suddenly she would look and see three leaves on the patio. <laughs> and, look a little, and she would try to get up, but she could not really get up. So I would get up, I would sweep the leaves, and back to the domino. Then the look. <laughs> Four leaves. Get up, get the leaves. More dominoes. Then the look. Three leaves. I get up. And I, have, I went to sweep the leaf. I have this slight moment of thinking, really, I mean, you know, <laughs> this is not very heroic, is it, you know, sweeping endlessly these leaves. And suddenly, I realized in that moment, there was nothing else to do. This was my task that afternoon, to play domino and to sweep leaves. Nothing else was required of me. That this was the meditation. This was the life. And at that moment, there was this incredible ease of being really fully in life in that moment, without back or forward or any spin on it. And so to me, this is very much part of the meditation process, that actually we become more ordinary in a way, in an, a meditative, ethical way. And to me, this is a little my life. Because when I was young, I wanted to be so special. I wanted to be special from a very young age. And first, when I was 11, I wanted to become president of the republic, to save the world, of course. Then I downgraded to be kind of, you know, like an MP. And then I downgraded to being a journalist. And then I became a nun. And then I really was special. I was the only French Buddhist nun at that time in Korea, among 60 million French people. And I was the only French nun in Korea, among 60 million Koreans. <laughs> that was special. <laughs> no, that was, I think, maybe the Tom Tom special name. And for me, it was very interesting when I stopped being a nun. And my first experience of wearing ordinary clothes and walking on the street of a French village, and nobody looked at me. And I thought, what's the matter? <laughs> and I realized I'm not special anymore. <laughs> And it was so interesting, that experience. And now I really rejoice in becoming more and more ordinary and not being special at all in any way. And I think this is part also of the meditation process, of the meditation for life process. Then there is, I would say, in meditation for life, faith in our potential in this life. I think this is, to me, this is one of the major gifts of meditation, to, in a way, remove the obstacle to our creative potential manifesting. To me, that's what we're doing when we sit in meditation. But not in, it mu I must feel it. I think we must be careful. I think we will feel it in our life. When we sit, we cultivate, we practice. But that's what will happen. Our creative potential can arise because the limit to it will dissipate. And so in a way then we can cultivate, we can train, we can experiment. And we can work actually and explore our potential for the positive, and our potential for the negative. And I would say meditation is a potential for cultivating the positive. That's what meditation to me is about. Cultivating the calm. <coughs> calm, not just to be calm, 
as I am unmoved, anything is happening, I don't care. To me, that is not meditation. That is not calm. Calm is for me, is actually spaciousness. That by becoming more settled, more calm, in a way where there is spaciousness. It's not that we are indifferent, but we are spacious. So that when we encounter circumstances, we encounter condition, we are not caught, but there is space around them, within ourselves and outside, and so that we can respond creatively instead of reacting blindly. To me, this is what the calm is about, to create the, the spaciousness. Then the openness. I think this is an important aspect of the meditation. Although it seems a very self-involved activity to just sit in silence and just working with ourselves. For me, the meditation is very much about opening our heart to remove the obstacle to the fact that we can open not only to ourselves, but to everybody, to everyone in the world, in whatever way we can. Again, not in an heroic way, like when I was 11, I am going to save the world, but to be open to the neighbor, to the postman, to one's family, to one's friend, to many different people, beings, animals, nature. There are so many things alive in, that we can in a way be open to, that we can respond to. And so in a way, see the world as an opportunity to connect, instead of seeing it as an, a place of danger. Because I think this is a problem. When we fix ourselves, we limit ourselves, then everything is frightening. But in a way, open ourselves in a wise way. Because again, we have to be careful, of course. You know, sometimes some people we have to be careful with. But there is also other people we can really connect and open to, who are harmless to ourselves. And so in a way to be careful not to use the meditation as a means to be detached from people. You can be careful around certain people, of course. But because I had a friend once, a, Ger uh, a friend, a German monk who came to my temple. And the reason he came to Korea, which is very group orientated, was because when he was in Korea, uh, in uh, Thailand, practicing, he went to practice on an island with a dog by himself. And he had incredible meditative state. He would sit and it was wonderful. He would breathe and he was so spacious and calm. But whenever he came back to the monastery, he would get into arguments straight away, immediately. So then he would go back to the island and he was fantastic. You know, the dog was wonderful, and then back to the temple, and it was the same. So he thought, there is a problem. I mean, I can meditate, it works well, but it doesn't work, in a way, in daily life. So he came to Korea to uh, try to see if in a very group-oriented situation it would work better. I mean, a little. So it was a little difficult for me as a translator. Sometimes I was cold and asked to translate, uh, to tell him that, you know, he must not do this, he must not do that, and there was a problem. And I saw, in a way, his problem one day. It was a great learning experience for me, because he would come to visit me for tea, when we had free time, and his favorite activity was to argue. <laughs> so to find something to argue about, and me being French, you want to argue with me, I go, <laughs> ready to do it. For no, no reason, I can do it. And so he would come and at the end he would go and I would feel really bad, like a were really kind of tight and kind of... I thought, what's going on? So after the third time I thought, wait a minute, what goes on? And I realized he was in a way picking an argument. And I thought, but I don't need to do this. I mean, he can do it if that's what he wants to do, it, but I don't have to do that. So after that, that became my practice. That whenever he came for tea, yes, I would give him tea, and he would say, what about this? He said, oh, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> what about that? I said, oh, mm, yes. Interesting idea. <laughs> and he left much faster, because I, 
there is no fire anymore because I did not get caught in this game. And that was a great learning thing for me to see how it worked. So in a way, to kind of, the meditation is not just to remain calm, but it's really to inquire what is going on, where I'm being caught, how can I creatively change, how can I work things in a different way. And this, I think, also comes from the brightness. To me, meditation is also about brightness, about creativity, about responsiveness. And that's why I think that when we sit in meditation, what we're actually doing is cultivating, developing, unfolding creative awareness. So when you sit, because nothing is going on, I mean, as far as I know, nobody is bothering you, so you don't really have so much to work with, so to speak, in general. So I, I, I think you cannot really see the effect of creative awareness. But I feel that's what you're cultivating when you concentrate, when you inquire, when you look deeply, that's what you're doing. You're cultivating creative awareness so that when you go back in your daily life, you can apply it in your relationship, in your work situation, and to yourself, even the way you relate to yourself. So the concentration, as I said before, the calmness, the stillness, the spaciousness, and to me, the, I know people generally think that concentration is about staying with the breath all the time. For me, yes, you can do this, but the most interesting things for me about concentration is that it enables us to see our habits. To, to me, that's what is interesting. That it enables us that we can become more calm, we become more aware, and we can see more clearly and non-judgmentally. What is it I think? What is it I feel? What is it I, I feel often repeatedly in my physical body? And to, in a way, to look at it in a very different way, so that you see it, and in the same time as you're seeing it, you dissolve its power. So then it can become it just a function because in meditation, we are not trying to, to, to get rid of the body, the mind, or the heart. On the contrary, we are trying to recover what I would call the optimal functioning, that your mind functions with freedom and lightness and creativity, and the same with your feeling, the same with your body. That's what we're trying to do. And so in a way, <coughs> to me, that's what is important. To, to see how from the patterns we fix us, and I'll talk more about this later on, to come back to the functioning. And I'll just give brief example. One habit, mental habits, I had when I was an early meditator, a nun in Korea, was to daydream. I love daydreaming. This was my favorite activity. I would sit in meditation, and I would daydream about sitting in a hermitage and becoming awakened and saving everybody. This was my favorite daydream. Until I realized I was not meditating. I was daydreaming about it. And this was not doing anything useful. Slight frustration with my meditation, actually. And then, you know, I dropped it. After a while, I dropped it. I saw through it in a way. But what was interesting is that where does daydreaming come from? From imagination. And imagination is a very important function of our mental faculty. And so to be able to use it in a creative way, I think is very important. But to see when is it creative imagination? And when it becomes what I would call daydreaming, which is very abstract and has very little connection to reality and often leads to frustration. And you need to see the difference between what I call ordinary creative functioning and what I would call habit, which really fix ourselves. Or in terms of a feeling pattern, I don't know, possibly, who knows, because I'm from the south of France or 
part of my biology or who knows. I have a tendency to be angry. I am lively, I am fiery. I used to be much more so. Now meditation has much improved my uh, anger, I must say. But it doesn't mean that I don't have it. But now I get irritated for two minutes. And then I see it and it goes. Before I used to be angry for days, you know, and it was rather painful for me and for others. But if you look at anger, it is just energy. Anger per se as a feeling is energy. Just an energy for many different reasons. You are angry, you have this feeling, it bubbles, it fires. And in a way to see that, and to see that it's painful, to see that it's really kind of, you spin it, you exaggerate it in the mind. And how can anger, you know, as a feeling, be useful? And recently in France, one of the great French heroes died. Even maybe here you heard about it. And he's called L'Abbé Pierre, and he was one of my heroes. And he, he died recently, and so there was a big thing in France. I mean, everybody was, you know, it was kind of like everybody kind of basked in his holiness, in a way. But to me, when I saw him in Rio, uh, was many years ago at a peace conference. And everybody was talking about peace, and it was multi-phase, and you know, everybody, yes, we are for peace, and da 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 da. And suddenly this little guy, because he was quite kind of small and scrawny and thin, and he came up and he said, I am angry. And I thought, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> everybody was talking about peace, and he was talking about anger, and he was angry at poverty. He was angry at homelessness. And that made him actually be very creative about it because he did not get lost and he did not become a disturbing emotion. But he was an energy which enabled him to create a huge movement, emirates, and do all kinds of things. So we to see again, the problem is not with the feeling. The difficulty is with the habits. And in a way, it's result, it's harm, harmfulness, it's pain that it creates for ourselves, for others. Or the body. Again, in the vision, each of us, because of different bodily, physical conditions, we have different things which are repetitive. For myself, that's why I sit on a chair. Regularly, I have sciatica. And at the beginning, I had sciatica. I was, you know, why I have sciatica, you know? And you think, why me? Meaning, you know, why not somebody else? I'm very compassionate. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, what's going on? And then I kind of started, instead of thinking, oh, this is terrible, I should not have it. I started to think, but why do I have it? It's not there all the time. I have a tendency towards it. What can I do about it? So then, in a way, I learned. And in a way, the sciatica was a signal to help me to deal with my body in a much better way. So that when I, I walk, when I leave something, when I garden, I can do it in a way which is more kind to my body, instead of doing a little heedlessly. So again, to see, there is, in a way, the meditation helps us not to negate it. Oh, it's not painful. But to see the pain, to see what creates the pain, and also to see how can I alleviate it in whatever way is possible within my condition. Then the other aspect is experiential investigation, this kind of looking deeply. And this is this ability we have to be bright, to be clear. And if we cultivate that, you know, that's why I think it's important. Meditation is not just about being calm and black. But for, to me, meditation is very much about cultivating vividness, clarity, openness, creativity, in this looking deeply into the experience and to see what is going on. So the awareness is not a bare, impervious awareness, but it's what I was called a creative, engaged awareness. And so you see in the experience and you see the changing nature. And I think it's very important to see the changing nature, to see that 
things might can remain in one way things can remain relatively constant. Tomorrow morning I am going to sit here, hopefully, if I don't have a heart attack in the night, and as far as I know, an elephant won't be sitting here. I don't think that there will be a major metamorphosis of my being in the night. So I presume over the four days I will look relatively constant. But who knows, something could happen. I was teaching in South Africa recently, and I don't know what happened one night. I was beaten by uh, something, and the next day, wow, my face, I did not look the same I generally do. I, was, I had a huge allergy. I was puffed up, kind of reddish, yellow blood. I thought the people were very equanimous. They never made any comment <laughs> on my change appearance. <laughs> so, you know, one day to the next, I looked, I would say, very different. And my face felt very different. But I thought, well, this is how it is. And I tried to do something about it, and in the end, it kind of changed. It took some time, but it changed. So I think this is important to see the changing nature, but that also there is some constancy. You're not going to change all the time rapidly, but they can be changed so that we don't feel so fixed. I mean, this is one of the pain we create when we feel, I am like this, and I am not changing. You could have a tendency to be a certain way, but it is not always there the same way. What is it that triggers it? What happens? Then there is there's a conditioned nature. Things arise out of condition, inner condition, outer condition. I would say, to me, the meditation process, in terms of daily life, is actually to learn more and more to discover the conditions that make us. And also the way our inner condition engage with the outer condition. And I'll talk more about this tomorrow evening. But to see, to me, this is why the meditation is, in a way, a journey of discovery, of condition. I think often people think meditation, and that's why they, they think it's a good idea, is going to take them above their conditions. Finally, one day, you will be floating up there, and nothing will bother you. I don't think that's going to happen. Who knows? I don't think so. I think on the contrary, you're going to understand what are the conditions that help me to be more calm? What are the conditions that does not help me to be more calm? This, I think, is very important to know the condition, to see how influenced we are by condition. And so how can we creatively engage with them? And I would say at that level, it starts to give us choices to kind of look deeply into condition. And together, the concentration, the inquiry, create, activate this creative awareness. And this, I feel, is important to see with the creative awareness, that we don't develop it in one day. You do meditation and suddenly you're going to be creatively aware 100% of the time. It's organic. We are organic. So I would say there is a process, what I would call the four-step process. There is the process of at the end of it. You go through the, the cycle of what I would call the negative habits. You get caught, you go through it, and at the end of it you see, oh, I did it again. This happened, I reacted that way, I was angry, jealous, sad, whatever it was, upset, etc. And yes, <coughs> happened a second time. At the end of it, oh yes. So you start to see, I think this is the first important step, to see that something has happened which is repetitive. This is important to see. Oh, yes, this happened. I felt that way, I said that. This happened, it was painful. Oh yeah, I think this is the first step. Then there is a second movement when we, and this I think is the most difficult, is when we catch yourself in the middle of it. And I remember when I was uh, with my husband at the beginning, back from Korea, and I would 
sometimes wake up and I would feel so angry. And I would say to him, I am angry. And he would say, but what about? And I would say, I have no idea. <laughs> there was nothing for me to be angry about, but it was his feeling, you know. And he wanted to see it. And to see it actually did not stop it, but made me aware it was there. So in a way, I started to be less caught in it. And then there is, when you start what I would call the second stage, when you in the middle, you see it, you cannot do anything about it, but at least through that seeing, it become, it weakens a little. The, the, the legs generally weaken. And then is when you see it at the beginning, you start to know what is it that triggers it. You see, and I know for myself, with irritation, I would find myself irritated. <clears throat> I am irritated. I am angry. And then I would look for someone to be angry at. You know, where are they? <coughs> and then I thought, but they have not done anything. And so instead of kind of looking for somebody to be angry at, I started to look, but why am I angry? And after a while I realized the trigger was tiredness. When I was tired, then I could become irritable. So then I would feel the irritation, I would, could see I am tired, then I would go to rest. And then after an hour, it gone. And then, you know, it was much more peaceful with people around me. But to see, this is, I think, an important process to see what is it that we not whatever it is all the time, angry, jealous, whatever it is. It happens upon condition. What is it that triggers it? So in a way to see ourselves at the beginning and then creatively turn it around with other creative activity, which will not get us into the cycle. And then there is a fourth step which I think is in a way the most beautiful step, is when we see it before we're going to get caught, before the feeling even arrives. You're going to go into your negative pattern, you're going to do the thing that you've done for the hundredth time since you, know, you were born or shortly after, and the creative awareness says, wait a minute, couldn't you do something different? And at that moment, you have a great fear. How can I do something different? I have never done something different. And this is why we often do not change painful habits. We prefer the pain of the known than the known pain of the unknown. And so, but the power, and I think that's why we meditate, to cultivate the power of creative awareness so that we see that moment and we dare to do something different. And then we have such ease. Oh, and you think, why did not I do it before? Well, you did not do it before because you did not have the power of the creative awareness. And so you know we to see that it doesn't matter at what stage we are. Something will be more intense. And so we'll often find ourselves in the end stage or in the middle stage. Something will be a little lighter or something we can finally see and then we can be before we do it. And if we do that, if you break through the fear and do something different, then the pattern really will go. Because at that moment you will see how painful it was for yourself and others. And then out of compassion for yourself and others, you will not be able to do it again. But you see that, again, one stage is not better than others. It's just a different stage in a way we go through as we cultivate the meditation, as we develop the creative awareness. And so I will stop here. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? Yeah, I mean, tomorrow I will look at what I would call more primary condition, which will be to look just at what I call contact and feeling. 
especially when we hear, when we see basic, very daily life contact. But I think also, if we, if we look at why we have habits, I think a lot of our habits have what I would call survival mechanism that we developed over time, especially in our childhood. And in our childhood, there were very good survival mechanisms. That was the only way we could survive. I mean, I have a friend, because of a very painful childhood, she developed an amazing skill at spacing out. And actually, she can enter amazing, very easily concentration state. She can go into meditative high state very easily. Because from early childhood, she developed this way to get out of painful situation, to just, in a way, be equanimous, but in this space, spacing out way. But now, she's not in such painful situation in her life. She has a good life. But she still has that survival mechanism of having a little difficulty <coughs> to really get to grip with the daily life. So in the meditation, it's very useful in, in a way, because she can't really get into very good state of meditation, but she also has to cultivate more how to be, how to dissolve the survival pattern which is not uh, so useful anymore. Or, so that's what I would call outside conditions. The parents, the family, the upbringing, but we also have what I would call inner conditions. For whatever reason, I don't know why I'm more fiery than somebody else might be more kind of, you know, have a kind of, my husband, I mean, is it because he's English? I have no idea. <laughs> but he's much more phlegmatic than me. There is no doubt about that. You know, he's very, I mean, he can get, you know, a little upset, but not that often. You know, he gets a, a lot to get him upset. So he's much more, he's not fiery like I am. He's more kind of has a more calm feeling to it. So why is it so? I do not know, but in a way, he has to deal with his own condition. I have to deal with my own conditions. And so what I'm trying to say is that there are so many conditions. So to me, it's not to say I should not be angry or I should not be irritable. This is the way I am. It has its advantages. I'm kind of a little go-getting. And at the same time, it has its disadvantages. You know, I kind of get irritated easily sometimes. And so, in a way, it's kind of learning all these different conditions, what I would call the mental condition. How do I think? What is it I think? What are the stories I am telling myself? What are the words I use? What is my inner language? How is that influencing me? My emotional conditions. What are my streams of feeling? getting to know how I feel, especially here. How do I feel here? And how the meditation helps me actually to bring more stability further down so that I can feel stable even when I feel a little funny here. Knowing my physical condition, you know, the way I have problem with my stomach, what I eat, what I don't eat, and various things like this. So that's what I would call the various inner <coughs> my being condition. And then the outer condition can be anything, from the weather, from what you hear, etc., etc. So that's the way I look at the condition. But this will become a little clearer. Tomorrow I'll talk more about the kind of the bare condition that we encounter. Yes? Um, you use the word creative quite a lot, and particularly creative awareness. Could you possibly explain that? Because usually I'm just used to hearing the word awareness by itself. Yeah, this is, because to me, that's what I noticed that I practiced more and more. I started to see that the awareness was not just to be aware, not just to be aware, <laughs> but that the awareness was creative that there was this movement, that the meditation over time re removed, I found, removed the obstacle to my creative potential. 
that instead of thinking this is the way it is and this is it, I started to think, well, I could look at this in different way. I could respond to this in different way. I could speak in different way. That's what I mean by creative. I mean, oh, I'll talk later at the end of the, re- of the retreat about creativity in terms of art. In terms of creative awareness, it's, it's very much as, in a way, in a simple term, giving us choices. Instead of thinking, I remember when I used to live in England in a community, suddenly there was a, something happened with the chimney and the the rain, there was a flood in the guest room. So I noticed it, I rushed out in the corridor and there is another committee member, an English person, and I said, you must do this. You know, that I can't remember exactly, but I said kind of like ordering, ordering him to come and do something with me to help in the guest room. And he looked at me and he went and do what he had to do. I thought, this is strange. Generally, he's a helpful fellow. Why is he not helping? So later, so I did the thing, and then later I said, but why did not you help me? I said, well, you ordered me in a kind of a unpleasant way. I said, oh. So after that, I learned that. In England, you must say, could you, do you mind? Can you consider? for my language too, you know. <laughs> so I tried to learn many different ways. And also basically it I mean it was not just sad, but kind of to think a little more before saying something. I mean I'm not saying that I always do it, you know, but sometimes I you know I, I if I go too fast then I might not say the right thing that I have learned now. So I try to slow down a little and try to see how can I phrase this. And to me, this is in a way a creative act. To try to say something you might have never said before. Or how can you, considering all the conditions, how can you say this? That's what I mean. That kind of creative moment. When you try to, to, to see. I mean, you cannot always do it, but what is this? What is in that moment the most creative thing you can think of doing or saying. So in a way, giving ourselves choices, that's the way I would look at it. So that we, in a way, allow our potential to come out and often say something we never thought before. And we often, I think, surprise ourselves in what we do, in what we say, in what we act. And I will stop here because you you need to have a, some walking meditation and then we'll meet again at quarter to nine for the final sitting.